What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 153, and we have a very, very special guest. We have Dr. Tom Campitelli. He holds honorary doctorates uh, in Texan methods from the Wichita Falls Barbell College, as well as the Barbell Medicine School of Digital Health in Audiovisual <laughs> Arts. Tom, what's going on, man? Howdy, Jordan. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Tom Capitelli is one of our coaches. He's been with us from the start. He is an OG in the strength and conditioning world. He's been coaching for, I mean, it's been almost a decade, over a decade now. Yeah, I think about 12 years. Yeah. And also a big rock guy, not just rock music, but just like rocks and, and, and land formations and other geographical features. Uh, I do have, I do have my bachelor's of science in geosciences. That is correct. Where is that from Penn? It's from Penn. It's right? from Penn state, uh, which sounds a lot like Penn. Uh, Penn is the university of Pennsylvania and is an Ivy league school. Penn state is the Pennsylvania state university. It is not a Ivy league school or an okay. Ivy league school. I think I would just let people confuse that. And, you know, if they made a big deal about it, I'd correct them later. But, you know, I think I'd flex the Ivy thing. See, I'm despite the fact that Penn State is now synonymous with awful things thanks to uh, their football program. When I went there, it was uh, a lovely place, and honestly, it still is a lovely place and a great school, and it is a very good school for geology. So, actually, for engineering and geology, Penn State actually is uh, probably a better name than than Penn. Yeah, that's yeah, what I, I tell think- myself. Yeah, right. Well, I was just enamored by Penn when I spent I spent a lot of time in Philadelphia when I was in medical school because um, I was dating a woman who went to – she was in school in uh, in Philadelphia. And so, I mean, UPenn stuff was everywhere, particularly their medical school and, and all of their different uh, sections there. But um, – Yeah, yeah. Penn is, Penn is huge down there. Penn and Drexel uh, down – they kind of share a similar footprint down in uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. And then they have Temple, which I guess is in northern Philadelphia. Or sorry, Penn, Penn and Temple, not Drexel. Drexel's in, in Philadelphia though, right? It is, but it's uh, Penn and Temple are right near one another. Oh, okay. Yeah, I feel like there's all these different medical schools and just schools in general. Like you got Thomas Jefferson as well. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, well, uh, PCOM, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. And then the Mütter Museum is right there uh, too. Yes. Uh, I got to go there um, before they closed it off to the public. And I'd like to think that I was part of the reason they kept the public out. <laughs> yes, the, Meta, the Mütter Museum of Medical Oddities. That place is great. I need to go back. I, I went there as my first year in medical school, and I was just kind of like, I don't know, overwhelmed and underinformed. And uh, yeah, it'd be cool to go back and be like, wow, that's uh, this is this is wild, and, and just to see what they added to the thing. So it is it is quite the display. I was particularly taken with the mega colon. The soap woman oh. and the babies in jars, not to mention the 
tray after tray after tray of objects inhaled or swallowed. Oh, the toxic megacolon thing. I, they describe it as it's like a dozen pailfuls. That was the unit that they use of like of, of waste. And I was like, well, I, they had to measure it somehow. And uh, <laughs> pailfuls seem like it reminded me of like a like a boa constrictor, right? Like the same size, like a full boa constrictor who uh, had indigestion. <laughs> that would uh, that would be correct. Yeah. Uh, in any case, so on this week's podcast, we're going to talk about coaching programming, kind of how that's morphed over time. Because again, Tom's been with us from the very start, from the starting strength days to obviously right now. And also Tom is a professional photographer. So we're going to talk about that. And then Tom and I have had the pleasure. Well, I like to think it's pleasure. Indeed. Uh, of traveling together. And we're going to, we're going to get into some travel stories if we, <laughs> if we make it there. Excellent. So uh, yeah. So Tom, again, uh, is a, uh, you know, he has his degree in in geosciences, you actually worked as a geologist for a little bit. Um, yeah, in fact, my first decade or 11 years after I graduated from college, I worked full-time as an environmental geologist. Yeah. So then, I, which it's the natural progression to go from that to a strength and conditioning coach. <laughs> yes, so, they are highly related fields. Same with photography too. Uh, that's right. So I'm, I'm so curious and, um, you know, for the people who don't know uh, much about you, um, who are, you know, part of our barbell medicine podcast audience. How did you get into training? And then how did this, I assume that happened first. And then how did you get into coaching? There's not like a direct path, but in college, I was a member of the Penn state karate club and became a black belt there. So I was active and that involved teaching and coaching because one of the things that you do, um, especially as you move through the ranks, is you start teaching people. So I had, I was reasonably coordinated and I was able to lead classes and speak. So um, I did, you know, coaching of movement in college. I stayed active after college. I was a runner. And then um, as I developed some knee pain, which would become kind of an, uh, an enduring part of my existence, uh, I then started to lift weights. And as uh, as I began to lift weights, um, and especially once I came to California, um, I started making some progress on lifting weights. And then people started asking me some advice. And so I started coaching it. And then, you know, during this entire time I'm working as a geologist, uh, I also take up photography during this time. And so I wind up doing stuff like taking vacation to go and work on seminars or taking vacation to go and shoot CrossFit events. And so I was kind of like working one and a half jobs and I became more and more unhappy with my job as a geologist, not because of the subject matter necessarily, but because of the company I was with. And so I was already kind of, I had these side gigs that I was making money with and I decided to step away from my full-time job. And I actually went part-time to start and then I was devoting more time to um, coaching and photography and then left it entirely. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of an interesting story in addition to like the non-traditional, I would say, sort of background. I mean, if you were like an exercise science major or a kinesiology major or something like that, and you ended up becoming a trainer or coach, like that seems like a pretty traditional route. 
um, for for a lot of folks, although not all folks certainly. But when it when it comes to coaching, particularly as a strength conditioning coach, I think the way that I've I've seen it happen most of the time is that people become very very proficient, you know, in a particular niche of training, whether it's CrossFit, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, bodybuilding, figure, you know, something like that. And invariably start, people start asking them for advice. And, and, it, and it sounds like when you came to California and the gym that you were at, you were the only person just doing regular strength training in your gym. And so you became the de facto sort of subject matter expert. Correct. Um, did you feel qualified to coach people like right off the bat? Or were you like scrambling? Like I need to get more, you know, I need to get, have more proper education or more, a, a better method or something of teaching this. I, I'm just that sort of initial foray. And in, I'm kind of wondering how you felt. Because most of my coaching interactions early on were pretty informal and these were not experienced competitors coming up to me and asking for, you know, programming advice. It was not overwhelming. It was more like, Hey, what are you doing? And I would say, this is what I'm doing. And then some of them would try it. And because I had an eye for movement and because I was spending some time thinking about these things and I had uh, you know, done reading on it, I was able to provide some advice. And that's, I think, in part because even though I was not any kind of deeply experienced weightlifter at the time, you know, I only had maybe two years of lifting under my belt seriously. Uh, I mean, seriously in quotation marks, but something I was doing regularly. I certainly had been watching people move and um, correcting them back from my days in college. So I didn't feel, I was certainly compared to what I am now, grievously underqualified and underinformed. But at the same time, the level of, of advice that was being sought and the level of people that were talking to me, it was more than adequate to help them along. Yeah. And this, what year was this? If you had to, this would have been like, I started informally coaching people, you know, late 2008 or so, uh, and then into 2009. Yeah. Just for like reference at that time, very, very little was available on the internet's for strength conditioning. You you still you had Westside, like the Deep Squatter website and Elite FTS and T Nation were like burgeoning with that kind of you know articles there. Uh starting strength was out. Right. And then CrossFit, basically. Right. I mean And I yes, was I was a member of a CrossFit gym at the time. And still am, actually. Still, I, still, <laughs> I don't do CrossFit, but uh, you know, I am still I still coach at that gym. Yeah, at the at the time, you know, you could if you wanted to train folks, you would get a certification. NSCA and the ACSM were probably the biggest ones. NASM was coming on the scene. Um, or if you were hardcore, again, you would get a CrossFit cert, but even that was like a fraction of its current size. The the problem was, uh, and I recall this because I was getting more and more serious into coaching others at the time um, in my own training journey as well. None of those really taught you how to teach others how to do this. Correct. Uh, you know, and so in addition to, you know, you making the statement that the level of information that was being asked of you was, you know, not from these experienced lifters. It's like, well, in addition, the other, the information that was available, freely available to folks was not, there, there wasn't a lot of it like there is now. 
right? So, so, it's, right. so it's different now. And the way I like would transfer that to people who are listening to this who are like, yeah, I want to start coaching people or I'm trying to start coaching people. Well, there's a lot more information that's available now. So, Correct. So you, you're probably going to have to be at a slightly higher level, like it's fun to knowledge to like start doing this. Um, but the good thing is it's more accessible for you. So you can, <laughs> it's out there. Um, that said, you don't need to be a professional lifter to coach folks. No, I, you do not. I, I, I think that if you're trying to coach high level athletes uh, in various sports, you get, you need to have some experience at a high level, not necessarily a professional level or like elite international level. Cause by definition, not everyone's going to make it there. And so if the only people that can coach, you know, international level lifters or international level, other international level lifters, we're, we're in trouble for developing <laughs> this is true. <laughs> international lifters, <laughs> but, but it would be, odd to, you know, be a powerlifting coach without any modicum of experience in powerlifting, for example. Correct. Correct. And Tom, just for the record, Tom, your best lifts. So people know, cause people, you know, people do so like, does Tom lift? It's like, yeah, it does. he's a, you know, oh, I won't steal your thunder. What are your, what are your best lifts? Uh, you can say in a, in a meet or in training, whatever you prefer. My best lifts in competition are not particularly impressive. Uh, a 195 kilo squat, that's four hundred and thirty pounds for our American friends. Yes, um, and uh, was it one ninety or one ninety five? Did I say one ninety five? I yeah. can't remember. I think it was one ninety five. It's been a while now. Um, I believe it was either a one hundred twenty five or a one hundred twenty seven and a half kilo bench press. It would have been two seventy five for pause single yeah. in competition, mm-hmm. and then a. 227 and a half kilo deadlift, which is 502 pounds. Although yeah. as far as deadlifting goes, probably my best deadlifts were, I think I did either 470 or 475 pounds for a set of five. Um, so that would probably equate to something a little bit above a 500 pound deadlift. Right. So Tom is trained. He has lifted heavy weights and uh, yeah. So now you're, you know, coaching full time in addition to doing some uh, other work with barbell medicine and your, in your photography, uh, business as well. So I want to talk about coaching. Um, and the goal here is to kind of give, again, the listenership sort of some resources and insight into the coaching process. And, you know, if they're going to coach folks or they have some interest in that, it's kind of some pearls here. So Tom, in your view, what, and this is about coaching folks, um, you know, mostly in real life, in person, because, you do that still quite a, quite a bit. Um, what is a coach's main role or main sort of task when it comes to working with an individual? This will vary based upon who you're coaching. There are people who need a great deal of help with mechanics because they truly do not know how to move. There are people that need help with programming and or figuring out kind of what the right levels of their weights are. But a very big portion that crosses over between both of those is that I provide both like, I essentially project my confidence onto them that they can do something as well as um, just kind of providing some useful advice along the way that is uh, just sort of like reassurance. Um, There is a really big component of coaching that is 
psychological in nature. And this is not necessarily to, you know, make them uh, or to function as a therapist. That's not what I mean, but just essentially being there and being present and listening to them and providing well-reasoned advice based on whatever the situation uh, presents. Yeah. I like that. I like to view like a coach as sort of establishing the constraints for not only movement, but then also programming and weight selection and, and things of that nature, in addition to providing some level of expertise in managing those things. So right, right. you're not necessarily determining their goals. You're not necessarily determining the exact technique that they're going to use or should strive for or work for, you know, or morph into, but you're, you're, you're establishing boundaries, you know, at least that's the way I think about it. It's like if somebody squat needs some work, you're like, all right, well, here's my level of it. Here's what I would accept this, you know, and you, and, and you're establishing those boundaries for the individual of same thing with weight selection. Here's the level of difficulty or exertion I would, I'm shooting for, and here's where I, you know, the kind of margin of error I would accept and, uh, and things of that nature. It, it's like you're a sounding board in a way, but again, establishing boundaries, and then also just providing expertise to the extent they need it. You know, right. I'm sure, I'm sure you have clients that never ask you or very rarely ask you questions about why and the what and this, that, and the other, just there to, they're there to, to train and, and yep. you're kind of calling the shots and you have other people who want to know the why behind everything. And it's, this is true. There's a, there's a wide variety of kind of what people want and uh, explanation. And I guess the one other thing I missed in there was just an accountability piece. Sure. Um, you know, if they are meeting with somebody else, they're more likely to exercise and keep going. So there's a, there's a big component of that too. And that's especially true when you have someone who you've been with for a while who already knows how to lift and kind of already knows what weights to put on the bar. You know, the amount of technical information I'm giving them in a given session is usually fairly low. It's again, I'm there. I am projecting my confidence onto them like, yes, you can do this, or, you know, maybe we should dial this back, but also just, hey, we're here, we should train. But your yeah. idea of kind of setting boundaries and then figuring out uh, based on what the client wants, steering them towards that and providing some advice and also kind of iterating and helping them hone in towards what your shared vision would be as far as um, how they lift and how much they lift and where they're going. So you've been doing this now, again, we established for a while. Um, what do you think are the major parts of your coaching? Um, and we'll, we'll leave programming out of this because we'll get to that next. But what what element or elements of, of your coaching has changed the most over time and why? I have become much less certain of lots of things. And I have become much more open-minded about technique and exercises. So I'm less doctrinaire and <laughs> I am more, I am more likely to embrace uh, vagary as well as all sorts of interesting deviations, mostly because the more that you learn, the more that you do, you realize how full of exceptions the world is. And there are, lots of things that don't wind up working or that may need to be adjusted based on the person. So I'm a lot more likely to, um, you know, 
be open to things and to change things. And that's yeah. definitely true. Like my, uh, my conception of what good technique is and what people should do as well as just how I like to, um, you know, uh, cue exercises and the variety of exercises that I use. And I'm a lot more likely now to do isolation stuff and fun stuff rather than being so focused on just compound barbell movements. Yeah. Squat bench, deadlift, press or die right. doing some, you might, might do some curls. <laughs> or if you have access, I mean, you don't have access to machines at the CrossFit facility that you're at, but if you Unfortunately did, not. I bet you'd use them. Oh, when, when I, when I program for people, uh, when someone says they have machines, I get all kinds of excited. Cause that means it's, you know, gym bro or gym sis time. Right. And people, people really enjoy it. And I also think just outside of even, you know, aesthetic work, I think it serves, uh, multiple purposes, not the least yeah. of which is enjoyment and training, but also just providing kind of much, uh, you know, lower stress work that can help keep connective tissues happy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, if you're looking at it from like a, a cost benefit or like stress fatigue sort of relationship, de- the isolation work, you can push much closer to failure with much higher volumes and generate less fatigue than compound lifts. And then if you're looking at data on hypertrophy outcomes, you have kind of multiple lines of converging evidence suggesting that isolation work tends to provide the same, if not more, hypertrophy stimulus um, in targeted muscles. It doesn't Heresy. mean that. Heresy. Ah, well, yeah. I mean, there are definitely <laughs> problems with proxy data, right? You're looking at stuff like EMG and then how does that actually correlate to muscle cross-sectional area, but there's muscle cross-sectional area studies too, and not, not a lot of them. And, and, you know, people are going to, will respond differently to different, to the same program. And so what is the margin of error or like the, 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 you know, error bar, that we're accepting here to kind of like say, Oh, this is, this works better than, than this other method. But yeah, I I like the isolation stuff as as well, particularly, uh, for non strength, like related outcomes. Um, yeah. And, um, and and very useful in injury rehab settings, Mm -hmm. very useful for hypertrophy settings. And then again, enjoyment because getting a sick pump, let me tell you, (laughs) <laughs> Arnold said it best and we'll let you find that quote <laughs> on your and, own. And who would have thought that bodybuilders whose sole mission in life is to make their muscles bigger would gravitate towards things that are really successful at making their muscles bigger. Right. Yeah, it's exactly. It's kind of like the methods end up, um, you know, kind of like revealing themselves over time um, in some, in some cases. Uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting because I, I think a lot of our, coaching changes over time have, have mirrored each other because I feel very similarly about not only my uncertainty about technique as far as, you know, what level of technique uh, uh, breakdown am I willing to accept and what does that even mean? And um, yeah, I think from an efficiency standpoint, I can make a much stronger case for using good technique, although that would be one of the components, like it's almost self-referential. Like if, it, if an exercise technique is very efficient in that it, you know, most of the muscular force production is directed towards moving the implement, 
uh, in a vertical or somewhat near vertical sort of bar path, then uh, yeah, it's pretty efficient. And that's a mark of <laughs> good technique. Yep. But but so from an efficiency standpoint, I think you make a much stronger argument than like injury risk reduction and stuff like that. Yeah, that's de- that's definitely something. And this is, as you said, I think it's been kind of something we have evolved on together, uh, which is the realization that all sorts of technique variation has a much smaller impact on injury risk than previously thought. Yep. Yeah. And then that's actually, that's really transferred over into how I explain things to people because uh, especially on with the online coaching, you know, people will ask or even just straight up inquire right out of the gates. They're like, Hey, I'd really like to, you know, work on my form because I feel like, for example, my knees are doing this at the bottom of the squat and I, you know, I feel like this is really bad and, and they're almost, they have some like existing level of nocebo, right? Right. Uh, and, and, and before I'd be like, yeah, I can see what you mean. Yeah. Knees caving in might put some extra stress on the medial aspect of your knee or like knees sliding forward at the bottom might put untoward, un, unwanted or excessive pressure on the, you know, anterior aspects of the knee, all this like very mechanical reductionist kind of stuff. Um, because from a physics standpoint, biomechanic standpoint, it kind of quote unquote makes sense. Yep. Um, but the reality is that provided the load is selected appropriately in the pro- progression over time um, is in lockstep with the adaptive rate, you can, you know, you can adapt to all of these things. And some of those may be advantageous for, for certain individuals um, and, and certain positions that you must get into for sport, for example. So now when I'm explaining things to people, and they're like, is this bad? I'm like, I don't know that it's bad. It right. may be less efficient. Uh, it may be costing you some repeatability, like the ability to kind of do the same exercise in a similar manner over and over and over again. Um, but as far as if it's bad, eh, I don't know, you know, kind of hemming and hawing rather than before. I'd be like, yeah, I think it's bad. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and this, this comes back to this idea of sort of projecting your confidence onto someone when somebody comes in with some worries about their technique and their fear for injury, having somebody tell them, actually, that's not a big deal uh, is important, especially if it's true, you know, and because pain is so kind of intermingled with threat perception, if you are no longer like scared of something, you are probably less likely to experience pain around it. Yeah. And, also to your point about, you know, like good technique. I don't know if you're familiar with the French lifter, Leah Bavoyle. She okay, is, yeah. she is the 63 kilo um, champion for the IPF. She is just insanely strong. Um, she's got like 451 or something like that. Yes. And she's pulled like close to 500, maybe higher. Yeah. I think, she, I think she's pulled over 500. Yeah. If yeah. you watch her squat, her knees touch as she comes up, you know, and I would not suggest that people squat like that, but, and, you know, it winds up working for her. And if I were to tell her, like, let's say I was coaching Leah and I was like, you better get your knees out. Would that add anything to her squat? No, she would probably like, because it's unfamiliar, would probably take pounds off her squat and would be contraindicated. So my, my confidence around all sorts of things and my certainty around all sorts of things is lower than it was. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. and that's been useful. Yeah. Well, so that ties in nicely to the kind of, to wrap this section up. Um, 
Tom, how, how would you advise people to get better at coaching? Somebody's just starting coaching, they're they're taking their friends or family members and teaching them how to do the barbell lifts or, you know, stuff like that. How do people get better at this? This is a good question because it's not clear. And I will say in advance that despite all of the words I am about to utter, that I don't have a great answer. <laughs> sure. Uh, there is a real like skill component to being able to look at somebody and then be able to tell them in a timely and concise fashion how to move differently. And the thing that you would need to be able to do is have an idea of what the lift should look like and then be able to break down if there is a deviation in that, what is the kind of in a triage fashion, what are the biggest things that would need to be worked on? And then to provide some sort of appropriate cueing to the person in real time. So when we're just talking about cueing mechanics or things like that, you would need to lift yourself. You would need to have a good idea of what you feel the lift should look like. And then you would have to be able to instruct somebody in real time. And fortunately, we are now in a place where there is so much video out there of people lifting and then of people potentially responding to those things, uh, even sometimes people that know what they're talking about. And so I think one of the easiest ways to do it would be to watch some video and then to see what people whose ideas you may feel are credible have to say about it. And then while you are in the gym, watching people as well and not going up and telling them anything, but thinking to yourself, what are they doing? How would I, would I say like, that's a good job? If not, what would I tell them to do? Or how would I instruct them to move? And getting people to work with it would be key in this regard because there's this enormous kind of interpersonal thing. How do you communicate with somebody, which is a topic unto itself. But uh, like lifting yourself and getting reasonably proficient at a lift as well as um, then having people to work with probably as a result of your own kind of achievements in that regard. And it's not even, you must squat 500 pounds, but if somebody sees you improving on a lift, they may wind up coming and asking for some advice and then working with them and being open to the idea that you are also incorrect and that you may need to change stuff going forward. So as I said, I don't have a ready-made kind of recipe to get better at this. And I will also say there are people that do all of this and still do not excel at coaching people in real time. And I wish that were not the case, but the world is a deeply unfair place in that regard. In actually every regard. In every regard. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I like that advice. I, the old, my, my, the only thing I would add to that and probably my overarching, you know, sort of goal first and foremost is to leave somebody better than you found them. Yes. <laughs> so, so what I, what I find is that people both new and very experienced in the game who are very, very focused on mechanics, particularly as it relates to injury risk can set somebody up for uh, 
failure or, or bad outcomes long-term by really, really harping on this sort of one-to-one connection between technique breakdown, what they view as good technique, which again would require a lot more thinking than I think most people have done to, to really suss out like what is good technique, what is bad technique. Um, and yeah, so, so if they're very, very confident that there's this one-to-one or linear relationship between technique, you know, sort of deviations, whatever that means to that person and injury risk, they can leave somebody worse off and, and sort of in their own head about with all these different cues and you must not do this. And if you do, oh my gosh, bad things are going to happen. Um, so I just would avoid that entirely. Absolutely. And, and then everything that Tom said, so you, you need to lift working through your own problems issues, troubleshooting, just puts more tools in your toolbox. The more and more people that you'll work with, add more tools to your toolbox. Um, Finding your coaching voice. So how do you prefer to communicate with individuals and how do they prefer to be communicated with? That's all part of developing your coaching craft. And then the I, I feel like your coaching I cannot be developed without coaching others. And so I would not expect, I, I would have relatively low expectations for a very, very new coach to be able to very quickly identify like, you know, movement deviations and have succinct, effective cues right off, right off the bat. Um, it just, you're, you're going to have to spend some time and, and that's okay. The point is, is to a lot while you're developing that craft over time is to kind of not mess anybody up by, right. <laughs> by just saying things in a manner that is, could potentially cause harm and is overconfident, particularly out of proportion to existing evidence. Uh, even if you do feel strongly about it, like if you feel strongly that people's knees shouldn't cave in at all on a squat and you have your reasons, I mean, that, that's fine. We can just disagree on that. But I still don't think you should tell somebody that they're going to, you know, rip their meniscus in half or like, you know, Correct. blow out their ACL. Because <laughs> e- even if that were true, which it doesn't appear to be true, what do you think that's going to do to the person's ability to squat? It's not going to help. Yeah. And to your point, you know, with kind of doing no harm here, almost everything you have mentioned are kind of harms based on the words that you use and how you approach these things. It's not the activity itself because lifting weights has an unwarranted reputation for being a risky endeavor. And whereas people are quick to write off orthopedic injuries that would be sustained in football or soccer or skiing you know, those are things where you can generate high unexpected twisting forces on the knee and hurt your knee, or, you know, you get tackled in football. I mean, not to mention like the orthopedic stuff, but also concussions and things like that, man. And lifting weights, your feet don't even move. And there's almost nothing. Yeah. There's, there's like almost nothing surprising that happens, which is not to say you can't hurt yourself lifting weights, but it's such like a static controlled thing compared to every other sport out there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the injury incidence, injury rate with resistance training, even competitive resistance training is so low Yeah, that if you were trying to make your bread and butter off injury risk reduction, I you're, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong field. Right. There's just there's not enough people going around. There are plenty of people who do get injured via stuff in the gym, via stuff outside the gym, or people who are in pain who you know need some help getting back uh, towards their, their preferred activities. But if you were just focusing uh, on trying to make money from reducing injury risk in the gym, it's like, look, man, there's not enough. And, then, right. and the injuries that do occur don't last long enough 
for you to like sustain a, a viable business uh, unless you were to trick everybody into thinking that they were going to get injured or are injured and, <laughs> and artificially increase. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you not- do, you do see people get kind of sore connective tissue stuff, mm-hmm. but that is not like a, a broken bone or, you know, a, a big tear of a connective tissue or of cartilage or something that would be more significant. Yeah. And it's not, well, again, it's not like those things don't ever happen, but it's more, you're more likely to get some sort of chronic, annoying ache or pain from overuse or overloading than you are to like suffer some serious problem. Whereas, right. you know, in other sports, you have at least more potential for that. Yep. Yeah. I think that, so the injury rates like two to four injuries per thousand participation hours and for all resistance training forms combined, competitive and not. Um, and then of those, uh, close to 95% of them resolve within 14 days, like symptom free within 14 days, right. which means they're not catastrophic, uh, compared to other non-contact sports. I mean, it's like barely even registers, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and then as far as like this, the catastrophic accidents, we're talking about high velocity, uncontrolled movement, you know, dropping a weight on yourself, uh, equipment breaking, you know, stuff like that. I don't know that you could do an injury risk reduction quality improvement project to move the needle there because they are by definition accidents. So yeah. And your Uh, your technique is not going to save you if you drop a weight on your foot. No. Uh, Interestingly of like the musculoskeletal or the injuries that occur in resistance training or resistance training settings, it's like almost two thirds of all injuries for individuals under the age of 16 occur from dropping stuff on themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Honestly, <laughs> gyms are slip, trip, and fall hazards. You know, yeah. I, I absolutely see that. Uh, I think that is a more likely thing to bother you than uh, actually getting seriously injured while squatting or deadlifting. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right. We could stay on this for a while. Yes. Let's uh, let's move to programming. <laughs> um, okay. So, again, similar to the coaching uh, thing, you've been obviously programming for all of your clients that you see in person. I assume it, it, for the longest time, you, you don't, you don't have many clients that come in following an existing program and you're just like going over their lifts, right? Um, when there are sometimes people will come in who are doing something that they have picked up um, or that they're doing, you know, maybe they're using a barbell medicine template, for example, or, uh, you know, there are, there are people that are doing other things. So we'll say I'm having trouble with something and we'll look at their lifts. And sometimes it's like, Hey, whatever you're doing works. Sometimes I will start diving more deeply into what they're doing based on what they say, and then start making some suggestions. And then there's lots of people that will then actually just want not only the kind of mechanical feedback, but also want ideas around programming. And not that I am there to give anyone any kind of a hard sell, but because these things are a little bit difficult to separate sometimes, in many cases, it's wise if your coach is also doing your programming. But I, I don't really, I don't program or I don't coach anyone on anything besides a one-off in general who is working on some other kind of programming. Like if there's somebody who is seeing me regularly or if there's somebody who's working with me online regularly, I'm doing their programming. Yeah, that makes sense. So what is your actual programming process? You get a new client, walks in the gym, they're like, Tom, 
I'm signing up with you. I want to see you three days a week for whatever, four days a week. Um, I want the deluxe Campitelli special. So like, what's the, do you, you put pen to paper? How long, how far are you programming for them in advance? How involved are they in the process? What's your kind of 10,000 foot view of uh, developing a program? I generally program one week in advance. Uh, I generally go week to week, even with all my clients. And that's even true when I got competitors and I know when their meet date is. I have a general sort of overall structure that I'm looking towards, but most of the time it's going week to week. And the reason for that is one, I have seen that when I program weeks in advance, adherence goes down and I oftentimes need to change things anyway. So uh, just programming week to week tends to work. Um, and it also just allows me to be very flexible about what they're doing um, so that I can react to things. The If somebody comes into me either in person or online, I find out what they've been doing. I find out what they want to do and I spend some time listening to them and trying to figure out what uh, what the goals are. And once that is clear, or even if it is not clear, if we can develop some goals, then we can begin to structure some things around that. And most of the people that are coming to me are already kind of self-selected. So they're going to have an interest in barbell training. They're going to want to get stronger in some form or fashion. But I have people that um, do other things. In fact, I have a guy who in the middle of training, decided he wanted to run a marathon. So like I have programmed him out to run a marathon, including programming his lifts around that. And I have people that are climbing mountains. And so we have to adapt the training around that too. But, you know, a lot of times I will base it around um, anywhere from two to four days of some sort of resistance training, usually involving the barbell movements. And then sprinkling in um, some accessories to taste. And I will usually start more simply and then start building in um, building in variety. And even for people that are quite new, I tend to program uh, for progression weekly. I think that an emphasis on making progress workout to workout is in many ways misplaced and actually not helpful. And that's another thing that has changed over time. Uh, there are people that can certainly make progress workout to workout, but I think that demand winds up placing too much emphasis on the external load and that results in poor long-term outcomes. And this is something you and I have discussed many times and you, you frequently discussed, it truly does not matter whether you, you know, have some sort of a sprint in the first three months of your training. In fact, I think it's probably less helpful to do that rather than to just proceed at a, a slightly um, more reasonable pace and to introduce ideas of, allowing things to vary early. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my my kind of underlying assumption is that the absolute weight on the bar matters very, very little 
with respect to health outcomes, which are the reason that most people, you know, are, are training, um, health, health outcomes being, uh, when we look at like health outcomes and how are those, what are the proxies for training outcomes that kind of like correlate here? We're looking at lean body mass. We're looking at strength. We're looking at power production and cardiorespiratory fitness. And so, you know, the idea that you have to get stronger in order to get healthier. Um, I don't know that I buy that. I, Mm -hmm. I, I -hmm. think that my gestalt, uh, you know, (laughs) I haven't used that one in a while on the air. Um, I I appreciate it. I did it for you. Yeah. Is that I think just the participation, the regular participation in, in exercise, um, to meet and or exceed the physical activity guidelines is pretty much all you need to the extent that you can add weight to the bar or add additional repetitions or, you know, whatever sort of progressive loading strategy that you prefer to use progressive loading, not overload, um, which is just a, a semantic, I feel like a way to, differentiate between forcing the adaptation versus letting the adaptation occur and then increasing the training stimulus. That's the big difference there. We have a, I think it's podcast episode 129 where Austin and I talk about that, but I think just the right. I like that framing a lot, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, the reg, the regular participation, I think in exercise that, that meets or exceeds the physical activity guidelines that, you know, is appropriately matched to your current fitness level. I mean, that's it. I think the people that self-select into barbell medicine, coaching, uh, or use our templates or whatever have a bent towards improving performance. And so, yes, you would get a little bit more specific as far as what their particular goals are, what their resources are. So how much can they train? What equipment do they have access to? I I like to ask them what lifts, what type of exercises do they like? Um, So somebody, for example, really hates front squats. I mean, I see no reason to front squat unless you're an Olympic weightlifter, in which case, why do you hate front squats? <laughs> or, why did, or why did you pick <laughs> Olympic weightlifting if you hate front squats so much? Um, yeah, it's just, there are very few, if any, exercises that I think any individuals must do unless mm-hmm. their sport requires it. So I think that feedback is like, you know, what they like to do, I think is the, the thing. So it's a more of a collaborative effort, but um, I agree with everything you said. And I program a little bit further out, usually between two to four weeks, um, mainly because I feel like I can't get a signal or I can't separate the signal to noise ratio in outcomes in a shorter period of time. So, for, so yeah, like if somebody, my, I wasn't able to add any weight to my squat this week, one week, I'm like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm just going to like, let's do the same program again for another week. And now if it transpires over two weeks, three, certainly three weeks and nothing has changed, meaning like they're not under undue environmental stress, psychological stress, whatever. Um, you know, they're not sick. They're not hurt. And I'm like, okay, well I could reasonably conclude that the existing program we're on right now, if it were designed to improve their performance in the squat or performance potential in the squat, doesn't seem to be doing the trick in which case modify. But, um, you know, I think when you are only looking at short-term changes in performance potential, certainly day-to-day or like every 48 hours, and you're concluding the, you know, does a program work based on that? That's problematic because just performance potential ebbs and flows, you know? And I think, again, that's probably a shift in both of our thinking over time. Absolutely. Um, People want to 
become lean. They want to become muscular. They want to uh, sometimes have a really big squat or a deadlift number or a really big bench press number. And I think realizing that that is the product usually of years of consistent training as well mm-hmm. as nutritional uh, sort of kind of um, nu- nutritional work is really important to get across. The idea that this stuff happens quickly or that there, you know, it must be done as fast as possible probably puts people further away from their goals. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know that your short-term sort of results really indicate your long-term potential. And the, the example we use at the seminar is that, you know, in his first year of training or first, I think it might've been a little bit under a year, Austin squatted 285 for five. Right. right. And my best squat at the end of a year was 550. <laughs> well, now I squat <laughs> 633 is my best squat to date. And Austin's best squat is 620, I think, or six. Right. He's going to kill me for getting this wrong, but it's something like that. And so we took two very different routes to the same place. But if you would have just predicted his performance potential at the end of a year, you'd have been like, eh, average. Right. It's just would- not predictive. So like this whole, what's the rush is what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's, uh, it is not a good metric. You're what you do in the early days is almost irrelevant outside of making you excited to train and yep. that you are able to keep going with it. Yep. The adherence stuff, avoiding injury, finding stuff that you like, you know, and then again, meeting all those components of the physical activity guidelines for health promotion. So the yep. cardiorespiratory fitness elements, you're making sure you're training every major muscle group multiple times per week to an intensity level that's pretty uncomfortable, but not like <laughs> failure necessarily. Uh, yeah, you can go a long way. You can go a long way with that. But as the specifics of programming, really going to be up to the individual, what they like, what they have access to, et cetera. So. And as far as programming weekly versus you know monthly, I definitely have some clients that request more structure or more of an idea Mm -hmm. of what's going on. There are some people for whom it's really helpful to see something further out in advance rather than week to week. You know, it's interesting. My program right now, uh, Mike T and I, so Mike T has been my coach since it's gotta be 2013. I think the first time you and I went to Europe, he like, I just started on working with Mike T and you're, I had like tempo squats, 303 tempo squats. And you were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I "I remember counting those for you. Yeah. Uh, We're at in Germany. Yeah. I was like, I don't know, man, this is terrible. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I almost died. I almost killed myself. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we were working on this like spreadsheet kind of like how to set up training to match an individual's performance potential based on some sort of subjective inputs and objective inputs based on their most recent performance in the gym um, to the extent that you can predict this. So I don't actually know my training until the day of. Oh, which is, yeah. So like one week I squatted four days in a row because oh. my legs just weren't sore and my squat just kept going well. And I was like, well, you should just keep squatting. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, so like some people that would make them just paranoid. They're like, what, I don't even know, like how to organize my training. And they're like, what's today going to be? And they would they'd just be anxious, an anxious, you know, ball of energy. And I'm just like, at that time, anyway, I was like, yeah, whatever. Just tell me what to do. I'll go do it. Cause I was just kind of punching the clock, doing some workouts. Now that I have a meet coming up, I'm like a little bit more, not concerned, concerned, but 
each week I definitely want to squat bench and deadlift in the competition variation at least once just to make sure that, you know, I'm getting some exposure to the, uh, to those lifts. But other sure. than that, I don't really care. It's just interesting because before I would have like my whole week laid out, you know, and then, and now it's like in the morning, I got to fill out the spreadsheet and then it's going to pump out my workout. And then I'm like, <laughs> Oh, surprise leg press today. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, all right. So we talked about coaching. We talked about programming. Love the conversation so far. We're going to go uh, a little bit different route here and talk about Tom's photography chops. Now, Tom has been he he's been mad at me for about three years now because I made a comment <laughs> that he was like a professional photographer. And what I, I meant is 2018 is was it 2018 or 2019? 2018 San, San Antonio. Yeah. Is it? Man, that's been three years. I know. That's nuts. so. It's, so the story behind there's a photo of me where I have my hands. It's like I'm gesticulating in some awkward manner, but the the background and the framing looks like I was in a photography studio, like this was a staged photo. And so when I saw the photo, my response is, "Wow, like a this is like a professional photographer," which was a short way to say it looks like you have me in a photography studio and this is staged. But I, what, it, what it came out was like a professional photographer. And uh, Tom's been mad at me ever since because he is <laughs> an actual <laughs> professional photographer. And um, I think it'd be interesting for our listenership to find out, like, how did you get into this? Like, what was your first paid gig and what transpired before that? And we should use professional photographer carefully. Because, you know, I am not a full-time working photojournalist and I do not make 100% of my income as a photographer. Uh, So, like, this is actually something of a debate amongst photographers. You know, if you get paid, are you a professional? Well, Mm. like, yes, but, you know, if you are not making your living as a full-time pro, are you a full-time pro? So, in the event that we have somebody who is genuinely making their living 100% of the time as a photographer, let it be said for the record that I am not making the claim that that is me. But um, as far as getting people to pay you for pictures or just sort of how did this get started, I went to compete in the 2008 CrossFit games. And at the same time, I borrowed a friend's digital camera to take pictures while I was there. And I took lots of pictures in the midst of performing exceptionally poorly at those games. And uh, the pictures came out pretty well. And as I took a lot of pictures and then culled them down to the good ones, which is a big part of it. And that convinced me that I should go and buy a digital SLR that I had thought about for years before then. And then I just started taking lots of pictures. And I think the first person to pay me to take pictures happened a couple of months later when my roommate hired me to shoot um, an event she was putting on. She worked for a nonprofit. So I shot this large open air picnic. And from there, I kept shooting pictures largely of my friends working out. And I was able to parlay my way into um, getting hired on to shoot the 2009 CrossFit Games. And as with so many things in my life, 
timing was a big component here. Just like when I first started coaching, I benefited from, you know, a, a lower barrier to entry. By the same token, when I started taking pictures, particularly of CrossFit, I was in the right place at the right time. And so I benefited from the fact that it was relatively unknown and that the level of photography that was being done for CrossFit was very low. You know, they're not, they were not hiring the Sports Illustrated guys to come out and shoot the CrossFit games. Um, so I was able to get in there. And once that started, um, I, I was able to kind of get more experience and get rolling. And I did take a week-long workshop with a guy named Peter Reed Miller, who is a Sports Illustrated photographer and an amazing shooter. And he's taken several pictures that people who you know follow football have likely seen in their lives. Uh, among other things, he's shot many Olympics. And so it, it built from there. It was showing some initial aptitude for it, be immersing myself in it, getting better at it over time, getting a couple of breaks, finding some people to shoot for, and then getting word of mouth and getting more more paid gigs from there. All right, so it's quiz time now. Hit me. What does DSLR stand for? It stands for Digital Single Lens Reflex. Camera, that's right. The dude nailed it. Okay. What now? The- I, are we just gonna are we just gonna drop that and like say you know does it, I think just for the sake of completeness, sure, a single lens reflex camera is something that has been around for many decades. Yes. Um, they're probably showed up in the 30s or 40s, and they became the dominant form of camera. And what they've got in them is a mirror that allows you to look through the lens. And this was a big innovation because in the past you would have something called a rangefinder camera where you could not look through the lens. And fun fact, um, there some of the like there's incredible um, war photography that was done uh, by I believe it was Robert Kappa um, with a rangefinder camera. Like he couldn't even look through the lens. He was using this sort of uh, archaic system when he was literally on the boats with the guys going into Normandy beach on D-Day, but single lens reflex, uh, you're looking through the lens, uh, and there's a mirror that swings up out of the way, uh, when the shutter opens and closes. So that's, uh, a digital one is just, instead of recording to a piece of film, you record to a digital sensor. We all know that mirrorless is clearly superior, but that's in fact, in fact, it is in many ways. And the digital SLR is, for all intents and purposes, dying and or dead. Yeah, going the way of the dodo bird. Uh, what is the coolest event that you've ever shot? I assume it's the CrossFit Games, but you might you might have something different. It would it would be one of the events I shot for CrossFit. I shot every CrossFit Games from, if you include the one that I did just for free for giggles, that was 2008. But the first time they hired me was 2009, and I uh, shot up until up through 2018. Um, I was their staff photographer. I was actually their senior, well, uh, their senior contracted photographer. I was not actually on staff. Um, What was my favorite? It it would have been one of the CrossFit games. And uh, although, 
you know, shooting, shooting the regionals, you know what? I think shooting the CrossFit regional competition in Santiago, Chile for CrossFit was my favorite. Oh, interesting. Uh, Okay. Because it was, uh, it was all of South America. So there were a bunch of people that had come down from countries all around South America. And literally there were uh, various groups of fans. There was a a big bus that had come down from Argentina uh, to root for their team. And so it was like a soccer match. People brought drums they had oh, cheering wow. sections. They had cheers. It was amazing. And also, you know, they flew me to Chile, man, to shoot this. And so I got to speak Spanish. And I'm not fluent in Spanish, but I can speak enough that it's fun. And it's this international competition taking place in this cool city that I've never been to before. Um, that was probably my favorite. That's, that's pretty sick. Uh, and I mean, the, the CrossFit games were a whole nother thing. They were lots of fun too. I've, oh, yeah. done so, I've done so many of them and there are so many cool things that happen there. It'll be difficult to pick out one of the games as my favorite. I mean, anytime that as, as an adult male, you can wear a bucket hat and <laughs> not, not get weird looks like, honestly, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great day. Do you have a most memorable shot? I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm so curious to what you you actually say. Mm. I don't know if I have one off the top of my head. I've got a couple that I certainly like, and I did take a shot of Rich Froning pulling on a sled that wound up getting that is probably one of the bigger shots that I've taken. Yeah, like, here's, Rogue, like Rogue adopted it or something. It's on like a billboard somewhere. Reebok, Reebok put it on a, their truck. And oh, in wow. fact, uh, they um, had like, I think the 2015 games or 2016 games, Reebok had this uh, sort of history of the games exhibit that they had there. And they blew up that picture to you know, eight feet by eight feet or something uh, that was used there. So that's, that was one of the, the bigger ones. And I've taken, I've taken a lot of shots that I certainly enjoy. I don't know if I have one where I'm like, this is my favorite shot. What would you have guessed that I would pick? I thought, so you had snapped this photo. I believe it was a froning, like right as he won, like clinched the win and it was going to be the perfectly framed, perfectly timed, like celebratory shot because he's celebrated. You were like dead in front of this guy. And somebody who wasn't supposed to be there waves their hand right as you click the shutter. Oh, <laughs> this so is you, <laughs> this is actually uh, when Katrin David's oh, daughter. Yeah, sorry. It was won. Katrin. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. She, yes, this is when she won her first games. I am sitting right there and she literally, you know, throws her hands into the air in jubilation as she crosses the finish line and her Icelandic compatriots who had surrounded me where I was, where they weren't supposed to be freaked out. And one of them threw their hands in front of my camera 
and I lost the shot and it would have been an incredible shot because no one else had that. And in fact, even though we had three or four photographers snapping away and we got something useful out of it, that would have been the shot. And that would have been the definitive shot. Yeah. Turned out not to be thanks to someone else, which again, the world is not a fair place. So if you're listening to this and it was your hand, you you ruined it. I remember. I remember. (laughs) We will not forget. (laughs) All right. Now we get to wrap this up with the, you know, a little more fun for the listeners. So Tom, the question, this is on travel. We're going to talk about traveling. Now, Mm -hmm. Tom and I met, this is back in 20, uh, it had to be 2012. Um, Yeah, 2012. We met in Colorado. 2013. Well, so it was 2012 because it was a Colorado seminar. Okay. And then uh, in Aurora, as I recall. Yep. And um, I had previously asked another coach if they were interested in going to Europe to do Mm -hmm. a bunch of seminars, Mm -hmm. and they declined. And so Tom was my backup. But fortunately, (laughs) Tom. Tom is actually very organized and, and, you know, obviously for many other reasons, this ended up being like, uh, you know, a godsend. So Tom and I agreed to go to Europe together. Uh, we went to London, I believe the first time we stopped briefly in Brussels. We were in Hamburg, Germany, and then we were in Denmark. Yep. Yeah. For New Year's because it ended up, it was 2012 to 2013. That's how Tom and I. Oh, and did came. we, did we also, we may have also done Amsterdam. I can't. Oh, yeah. Did we, yeah, yeah. I think we went. I think we went London, Amsterdam, Hamburg, Copenhagen. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And we it should Hamburg. be. It should be pointed out that we had known each other for maybe a couple hours, and you said, "Hey, do you want to go to Europe?" And I yeah. said, "Okay." Yeah. Yeah. So reasonably. Was, yeah. I'm. Yeah. yeah. We're both reasonably charming people, and that's just go. how that works. Yeah. Uh, so now, and no pressure to. But what has been our best trip? Because we've been in multiple places. We've been to Europe a number of times. We've been to Australia a number of times. We've been to a bunch of domestic places. So the question, Tom, is what has been our best trip to date? This will be tough to answer. Uh, I will say that the last time that we all went to Australia. So this would have been the 2019 trip. Oh yeah. Where everyone went. That was one of my favorites, but that was because other things in my life were not particularly happy. So being able to go on that trip was really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. I will. And the, as far as the ones like just you and I went on because that was essentially what sort of laid the groundwork for us to go to Australia as barbell medicine and bring Austin and Leah as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there would, there would have to be like sections of each trip. Um, the first one that we went on was a, a lot of fun because you and I had never traveled together and it was cool, especially to explore London together and, you know, see a bunch of sites. Like we were really like full on in tourist mode. Sure. Um, so that was, that was something I very much enjoyed, but that you probably didn't because we had to share a room and you had to listen to me snoring. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> um, it's the worst. And uh, I think, you know, also when we went to 
Australia the second time because outside of New Zealand, um, or maybe that was when we went to Australia the first time, because I've been to Australia so many times, both through CrossFit and through, uh, you know, going out there to coach. But we went to, we went to New Zealand and we had a less than awesome Airbnb, but, uh, where <laughs> I slept, it, where I slept in the closet, That's but true. especially, uh, especially like the Australia part of that trip, because we had traveled so much by that point, we actually had like really nice places to stay mm-hmm. and things, things like moved along really well. Um, that was also, that was also good. So as with all things, I am unable to answer the question, but I use a lot of words. I oh, know. I like it. Yeah. No, add, add, add extra verbiage to make up for a non-answer. Uh, <laughs> Works every time. I think, I think my favorite one actually was the second trip to Australia. Um, so, so, and here's why. So, and this is why it's relevant to the listeners at home. So Tom and I went to New Zealand first. We like, we previously had gone to Brisbane, uh, Sydney and Melbourne, um, to uh, our first trip to Australia. The second time we were like, we were like, Hey, we can, let's not go back to Bris Vegas. All these bugs (laughs) are trying to kill us. It's too hot. (laughs) Like there's nothing there. I mean, here's how, you know, there was nothing. That was, I, I would like to say for our Australian listeners, I liked Brisbane. Look, hey, I had a picture of the bridge that you took in Brisbane as like my wallpaper. This is very pretty. I had excellent donuts, but here's like there was nothing to do. We watched. (laughs) Remember, we're on vacation. We ended up going to see The Revenant, like a a two and a half hour movie where nobody says anything. Like that's (laughs) it was so bleak. It was so bleak. Yeah, I remember that. The second trip to Australia, we uh, yeah, we went to New Zealand first, and yeah, save for like the Airbnb that was not great. Um, hey, when we got to hike Wadapu Trail, oh, I felt like that was amazing. Hundred, yeah, that was the best hike I've ever been on. The drone footage that still exists to this day. I mean, that was so cool. Sydney, yeah, you were you were getting into using your drone on that. There are a bunch of cool things you shot with the drone. Yeah, Sydney is as always was amazing on a mm. boat with uh, our crew from down there, and then Melbourne. We had an excellent place to stay. The gyms were all excellent and accommodating. But what happened was. In the midst of this trip, that was right when we were going through the breakup with Starting Strength. Yes. And I think for both of us, um, we had just had so many personal ties with individuals in that community. And what it felt like at the time was that we just lost our entire social circle. Mm-hmm. This like there was this cutoff, and it's like, I thought we were all friends. You know, even if we disagree about RPE <laughs> or like <laughs> how online programming should be structured. You know, as far as like, oh, you're a starting strength online coach versus not, like, that's okay. But, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there anymore. But yeah, it just felt like, oh man, it was like a big, it was like a big sense of loss. And we were out of the yep. country and doing this thing, but we had each other. And I'm not being weird about it, you know, not like, at all. In fact, other. I would but agree. Yeah, it was cool. And we were like having the time of our lives. And that, yeah, ended up setting up. We had not done barbell medicine seminars really prior to that. And so, and here we were internationally and there were people, you know, selling out, showing up to what is just you and I kind of do like yeah. lifting camps and stuff. And I was like, dude, if we can do these internationally, we can do these anywhere. Um, yeah, just I, will, I will also say that this is where I fully came over to the dark side too. With RP, uh, yeah. Yes. Because, you know, you and I, you were kind of developing a bunch of these ideas uh, that were sort of diverging from where we had been before. And you were discussing some of them with me and I was pointing out this is a, and this is from somebody who 
was fairly, uh, you know, set in his thinking and thinking that I knew what I was doing because, you know, I had a trainee that was going to IPF worlds as a master's one, you know, I, I thought I knew my stuff. And as you kind of, not only did we have this cool time to be together when things were kind of roiling outside uh, of that, but also, uh, you know, getting to talk through these ideas and, you know, as I was listening to you, I'm like, man, this is, this is important stuff. And I think I told you that I said, this is a very kind of interesting take on this. This is important and it's different. And I haven't heard this before. This is, this yeah. is good. Yeah. You kept saying it was important and persuasive. And I was like, yes. Okay, all, right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. A better, a, certainly a better story than my brush with edibles in Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out when you eat a space brownie and you're, you know, and you don't know the dosing, you should probably stop at half. Maybe the answer, the answer that you chose was to eat more, eat more. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's <Up to> happening. <laughs> Silly Americans. What a classic yeah. thing to do. <laughs> yeah. That was, oh man. I just remember getting lost in where we were staying in Amsterdam. I was literally walking around the block for six and a half hours before I, I recognized our hotel and, and then, you were you were within three or four blocks of us yeah, too. Yeah, you were really close. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Love that for me. <laughs> but yeah, the Australia trip is better than that. Um, anyway, Tom, this has been great, man. We've been it's on been here a pleasure, for man. a little over seventy minutes. For the listeners at home who may not follow your, you have a separate photography page rather than the stuff you do with Barbell Medicine. Um, where can people find you? Do you just prefer them go to your Instagram or, or how, how do people contact you? People can, uh, I have a website that I have not updated in many years. It's called TomCStrength.com. You can certainly send me an email via that. I have an Instagram page at Tom Campitelli. I used to post a lot more there. I still sometimes post things there. They occasionally have things about weightlifting. There's a lot of photography stuff. There's a lot of words. Um, I can certainly be reached through Barbell Medicine. I do all the coaching inquiries. And uh, I also, well, there has been a rumor that I run the <laughs> Barbell Medicine Instagram page. I can neither confirm nor deny that. It's neither here nor there. You, you, some, some would say that you could tell based on the caption who writes that, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, let that, we'll let that fester a little longer. I don't know how anyone can make that kind of a claim. That's right. Uh, Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 153. Thank you so much to Tom. We'll catch you guys next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. Later.